Let me make two or three comments and not take that question on totally in depth. But say to you, Walt's going to talk a little bit on the Old Testament tonight, and in my last segment, the next segment after this, I'll, I'll touch on it again, show the value in the Old Testament. Uh, let me say to you that as I, as I look at the kings, I do not want to give you an impression of a capricious God that slaps the guy simple when he crosses the line. I want you to appreciate that you have a God that's unbelievably gracious and he's much nicer to you than you deserve. I got 209 years of junk going on, and he sits there and does his best to win their hearts back. He goes over and over and over and over and over and over again to try to help them, and it carried into complete disaster. I would say that speaks of God of unbelievable grace. I speak of a God that, <clears throat> as you come into these areas where you see where God makes some great promises in their life, and they turn their back on the promise, they want the promise, and declare they are the ones that they're going to get the promise themselves. God didn't turn himself on them. They turned themselves on themselves. And they, and they carry out the consequence. I think a king like Manasseh, that is a guy that is unbelievably in sin. His, his, his depravity is so extreme, I don't even know how to discuss it. <laughs> that he's up in Assyria, and he turns to God and repents in a loving God, reaches out and holds him, and reestablishes his kingship. And though we never see Manasseh influence again, Manasseh will spend his eternity in heaven with God. That's a gracious God. It's an unbelievable gracious God. And on and on and on. The second thing I'd like to say to you, though this is not your question, is I am fully convinced that the evangelical, that we miss a component of God when we don't understand there is a pure component of God. God is a God. What are you doing, Lynn? <laughs> Oh, okay. <clears throat> that there is a uh, <clears throat> Lynn. That's it. Turn your head to me a little bit now. <laughs> What's my love? <laughs> that that is evangelical. We focus on the love of God, which we should. I'm no way moving this one micro instrument. But there's a component of God that Jesus Himself declared that Paul spent time discussing, calling fear of God. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. That word means terror. No, let's not miss any bag on that God. We're dealing with a fearsome and awesome God. Let's do not take it in a cavalier fashion when we're dealing with the God of the universe. And so I think we need to understand the fear component also. And I would encourage us always to be with an alertness to that component as well as the grace component of God. Fair enough? The third one in the Old Testament is that God writes the Old Testament in such a way as he says that it is to increase our hope and to give us encouragement. I think we look at these guys and get tremendous encouragement on how God's pointing us. And I think he's giving us real lessons for today. I'm not trying to allegorize it. I'm doing nothing but other than just trying to comment on some of the things he taught them. As I approach 40, you know when David blew it with Bathsheba? 39 years of age. When Hezekiah blew it? 39 years of age. The guys between the that 30, high 30s to mid 40s, they're taking a, well, they don't take a gun out. They didn't have to take a spear out and blow the brain back. <laughs> I had a question over here. And my answer to him was that he was doing so well he said, give me some. But <laughs> <laughs> the question is, how do how do we determine the tension 
on when I am accumulating horses and when I am, <coughs> excuse me, increasing wealth. How do I make that delineation? Is that, a, is that fair enough? And I want to say to you guys that that is determined, and I think in our God's strategy, that is determined in the arena of accountability. I hearken back to that. That is a determined arena of accountability. It is determined by your motives and your position with God and your maturity and what you're trying to do. But sometimes that's very difficult to sort out. <clears throat> we were discussing during the coffee break. Wonder what had happened if David, when looking down upon Bathsheba, says, <clears throat> I think I'll have a fair with Bathsheba, but first I want to check with Nathan to see what he says. Huh? Or even after he had adultery, and he says, Now the way I gotta get out of this, logically the thing to do is what? Kill Uzziah. But I think I'll just review it with Nathan before I do it. And yet, guys, he went blindly deeper and deeper into the pit when he had men of God around him to help him fight that out. Sometimes I'll make an idea in my mind. I'll take a position that I'm going to do, and then I'll be trying to explain my motives. Halfway through the explanation of my motives, I begin to laugh at myself. I couldn't believe what I'm saying. I didn't want to believe that in the case of beans. And I'm sure, I assure you, I am absolutely convinced that every law of God is negotiable without accountability. There's not a guy in this audience who will not negotiate off the law of God if you're not accountable. And if you're not accountable today in the issues of your life, spiritually, you will not make it through your life without great fall. And that's not me speaking. That is the history of the Bible speaking. Yes, sir. It was, what it, Jack? Jack, I think I found it isn't. The question is, how is the review of the kings an encouragement? That is the question. And I think it's an encouragement for two or three reasons. One, I sense in the character of God, a God who doesn't give up on me. I sense in the character of God, a God who wants to be with me and work with me on my problems. God, what are we going to do about this? I sense in the character of God and a situation like that, that God understands my plight and has a pretty good strategy for me. It's a fairly simple strategy. And I sense in a God that he does not ask me to go it alone. And I'll try to be in control, but that he would be in control. I also find great encouragement that these great men of God broke their nose just like I did. But we still have the right to get up, dust ourselves off, and go on. I find that terribly encouraging. I find it very encouraging also that the midlife crisis is not a dirty trick by God. That the midlife crisis is not a dirty trick. But it's one more meaningful thing God is doing to help you squeeze out your commitment to Him. Are you with me, guys? And you're going to either look on it as a dirty deal, or you're going to say, that's reality, that's what's happening in my life, and I will sort my commitment down deeper to God. It's not a dirty trick. So, Jack, I find that very encouraging. And if you don't agree, buzz off. <laughs> Thank <laughs> you.
Okay, let's go on for the next section, and I'll have a, I'll have a question after that. What I would like to do now, is I would like to, on your second sheet, I think it's the second or third sheet of the handout, and some of you guys did not get the, you got the leftover handout, but there's a sheet that looks like this. Mm -hmm. See that? Where it just takes the junior, I don't think you guys got that one. Uh, that has that second sheet in it. And I'm gonna be talking along that sheet because we're not gonna mess with the ten tribes anymore. We're going to just focus in and try to say what have we learned from these guys. Now what I want to do here is I want to tell the story a little bit more, discuss it a little bit more, and try to draw exact the truth out for you that's the principle for you to do. Now I'm going to do one more favor for you. I'm going to tell you a one or two word description of that king. And, and note it down there, because if you go back to study, see if you agree with me in your own studies of king. Okay, what the key word about that king is. For instance, the key word on Saul is rebellion. Saul is a great study in rebellion. Second Samuel chapter 15 is a great study in what happens in rebellion. 15. In his, in his battle with the uh, Amalekites. Now, in the first group of the rise and fall of the Jewish Empire, we've noted that in a hundred years it rose from absolute obscurity into a world power and the destruction was set up in that same time, time frame. We have from a humble, mud-hubbed king, a mud-hubbed <laughs> king, I couldn't get the word out, a mud-hubbed king, we rose to glamorous places for the king to live, unbelievable wealth, etc. The key thing I want you to pick on is, in every one of these, God gave them a promise of one of the greatest things they wanted to have, and that was an inheritance that went forward. And two out of the three guys, two out of the three guys chose not to look to God to answer that promise. They chose to keep themselves in control. David being the only man that he ends up in Acts that turns back to God and, and says that he is a man after God's own heart. The key word on David is process. David is a great man that stays in the process. He's a man that stays delving in the relationship to God. Many times I've been, it's been told me, if you want to study a godly man, study David. I'd say King said, you want to study a man who pursues knowing God, study David. You don't know what it looks like for a man to pursue knowing God, study David. That's what you learn from David. And it's a great, uh, it's a great man of the process. Where on Solomon, I would say the key word is dabble to destruction. Here's a man that God gave the wisdom of the ages. Here's a man that God uniquely blessed. And if you read Ecclesiastes, you see a man dabbling, playing around with getting himself deeper and deeper into issues to the point that he dabbles his way into destruction. In excavations archaeologically, they find horse stalls for thousands and thousands of horses. He had thousands of wives. 
it can be proven that he married the Ammonite mother of Rehoboam when David was still alive. He was delving in foreign women early on in the game. And he's a man that increased wealth, if you look at Ecclesiastes, for pure the joy of pursuing wealth. Guys, he took the five big things that God said don't do, and he did them. And he set up not only the destruction of the Jewish nation, but he set up a pattern of struggle those guys had with for years, with the wealth situation, with the high places situation, etc. The key question that came down for Saul, David, and Solomon is, who do you trust? There was no disagreement on what the need was. The need was for a lineage. The question was, who's going to be in control? That was the whole question. It was not a question of what the need was. All three guys agreed with what the need was. The question was, what is the control? The next thing. When we go into the period of um, conflict with Israel, remember real Brian takes over. He really strikes up a battle with Israel. They fight vehemently for the win, but he continues to lose his battles. He lives in frustration. The king of Shishak comes down and beats him. Rehoboam, the word you use for Rehoboam is illogical. God continues to give him the answer to his life. God, he goes to God and says to his accountability group, what am I to do? Am I to toughen the taxes? What am I to do with the request of the ten tribes? God gives him the answer. He chooses to refuse the answer. God gives him the answer with Shishak. He refuses to handle the answer. He continues to operate illogically. And the key word on Rehoboam is being illogical. Abraham is such a short time you really can't even pick up any trade on him. And you go on into Asa. And Asa is a good king uh, that, uh, uh, I guess, I how many years, I think it's 41 years that he reigned. Yeah, 41 years, and he's a good king. And we spoke about Asa, the fact that he had the great victory of God against the uh, Ethiopian army, the million troops against the 500,000 500, troops. Great victory, and yet in the end of his life, 36 years of peace, he turns against God, only in complete rebellion. And ends up his life in complete uh, defiance to God. The key word on, a on Asa is that he forgets. I've thought many times in my life, what's the value of a diary? It's to remind yourself of the unbelievable things God has done, is doing in your life. Oh, how quickly we do forget these things. And in Asa's case, if he just stopped and remembered what God had done for him, it would have stopped the fact of what he had gotten himself into. Asa is the guy, after all of this victory, that the words are said to, that God's eyes go to and fro. That's who God is talking to. You know that? Everybody knows that verse. But that's who the guy is talking to. And the reason is that uh, Basham is the priest's name. Basham goes to him and says, the problem is the following. You turn away from God. He's giving you all these victories. What are you doing? God's eyes go to and fro looking for righteousness. And Asa in defiance has him killed. And Asa in defiance turns away. Having all the logic before all the evidence, he pursues the illogical. What are we to learn from those guys? And I want to tell you that a key point that has come to me in the last few years is this. That to pursue righteousness is the logical thing to do. And I'll make that statement to you one more time. If God is who he says he is, fact, then to pursue righteousness 
is the logical thing to do. To pursue any other thing other than righteousness is illogical and insane. It's got to see says he is. I stand before a group of men in different levels of maturity and different levels of commitment to God. Men who have said, I trust you, God, for eternity. Men who said, I'm going to gamble the greatest gamble I have, and I'm going to turn over all my eternity to you. Because you're who you say you are. But the man on God, leave it alone because you don't know how to live in this world. God, I, you do a good job in Bible study. And you put a meat down to church. And you're not so bad in the family. But God, you don't understand how tough it is in business. I've got to control it here. A tough admission for me to make is the pursuit of righteousness. The pursuit of doing what God would have me do. If God is who he says he is, is the only logical course. Everything else is illogical and insane. Now guys, if I choose not to pursue God's plan in my life, there's two or three things I will do. I will pursue and struggle to give my life to things that God is in control of, such as dollars, success, circumstance, etc. I'll spend the rest of my life trying to manage those things which God said I'm in control of those anyway. Then what to do I'm in control of it. Parenthetically, let me say to you, your definition of success will largely determine how you deal with God and how you deal with your job. I find more trip-ups on what your thoughts of success are than almost anything else. Second thing is you decide to pursue not the logical thing like we were born did and Asa did. You will define and pursue your best interest to meet your needs because you can't trust God to get it done. You'll put yourself back in control. If God is not who he says he is, and then I've got to pursue something other than what God has planned for me to do. And I will take control and I'll pursue my needs. Same thing is, I will pursue products as a measurement of my value. I will give my life to things that are going to burn up. That's the third thing I will do. And the fourth thing I will do is I will not deny myself. Right? Absolutely right. The older I get, the harder it is to say it is right to deny myself. Deny myself. It's a harder for me to say that than ever. Unless I grasp the fact that God is who he says he is, and the only logical thing to do is to pursue how he told me to live my life. Anything else is insane and illogical. Oh, the times we talk about this is too hard. It's just not a logical thing to do. Go back and review who God said he was. See, that's what we were born didn't do. That's what Asa didn't do. They had all the evidence they could absolutely amass in front of them. He gave them the answer. And they chose to go another direction of logic and determine and declare God illogical. And so God says to him, I'm going to bring a fish back on you so that you'll learn that it is better to serve God than to serve man. Right, guys? Before, I will pursue and struggle and give my life to things that God is in control of, such as dollars, success, and circumstance. I will define and pursue what, what my best interests are. I'll put myself in control of my needs. Third, I will give my life to products, which will burn up. And fourth, I will not deny myself. All right? Bad. Those are all my distinctions, too, guys. Those are not. 
God didn't comment on that, the Bible. That's just me. Uh, okay, I said to you, parenthetically, that how you define success will largely determine how you apply the Bible into your job. How much you, how much you let God into your job. And the great heart is, I'll see a guy say, I want God to control my job. And his definition of success is such that, that if God does not richly bless him materialistically, God ain't an answer. The question is, does God control the job, or do we control the job? Let's see the guy. Jehoshaphat threw out to live. And then we see one of our greatest kings in Jehoshaphat, which means Jehovah is judge. We see the setup of the great destruction of the Jewish nation because of his yoking, because of him babbling around. Jehoshaphat, the thing the word to look for is evil alliance. Evil alliance. He's a great man of God, but the evil alliance, why did he go do that? Why did he go babbling around with Ahab? Jehoshaphat becomes entangled in his world and extends that because he wants the peace with Israel to the extent that he does not trust God for something God said, leave it alone, leave that alone. And he decides to go ahead and make the alliance for him. He gets into the yoking. And it sets up the destruction of the rest of Jehoram, completely dominated by his wife Athaliah, turns to destruction of the Jewish nation, of the kingship, destroying brothers and sisters and dragging the Jewish nation down into depravity. It's an unbelievable record from this great man, Jehoshaphat, to where he took them. And I'm absolutely convinced that the Bible is not it's totally explicit on it. It is the influence of the wife. And I would say to you that Jehoram is evil influence. But the word I would write by Athaliah is Jezebel. Yoking is a thing I really encourage you guys to do a study on. Yoking to me represents our attempt to mollify our dependence upon God. When we get into an incorrect yoking, we're trying to make a step that says, I want to make this union or this alliance so that I don't have to depend on God so much. Specifically, this is true in the business environment. We make business contracts. We involve ourselves in situations that go against our better part of our wisdom, to take us in areas we know we don't belong into. We venture in areas where angels don't bear the trail and make these relationships and alliances that will drag us down. I want to say to you, though, yoking is terrible. The greatest sin in this room, and I don't even know one tenth of it, is entanglement. You're entangled in the world. You can control maybe your yoking contract, but you're entangled in the world to the point of compromise. You've got too much invested in the world. And it's not classically the yoking concept, but it's an entanglement that says that I depend too much on the world for giving things. I depend, depend too much on my job. A guy said to me, I can't be yoked. I'm in a corporation. I can quit any time I want to. And I want to say that's not true as a Christian. If I'm in a position of authority and responsibility, just because I get the desire to leave because it's not working right for me, I have a responsibility to fulfill by the command of God. Guys, I am entangled. Do not misunderstand me. 
because they have a partnership I just want to dissolve and I've written a contract for, you just don't really nearly do that and maintain the responsible stature that God has put you into. To watch carefully what you entangle yourself with. It does not want to be penetrating in the world. See, that's the great tension. Because God has not called us to retreat, he's called us to what? Alien and exile into penetration. The threat is when you penetrate, how do you stay unentangled and unencumbered? And that was Paul's great argument, right? When he says that a soldier does not become involved in civilian affairs. And the reason is, don't get that entanglement such that it detracts your ability to witness. How can you measure that entanglement? Well, maybe some things you might think about is saying, if I've got a sales situation that I'm talking to the guy, and I'm afraid if I witness, he may not buy from me, and I would suggest to you entanglement. If you're in a contract negotiation, and you've got the guy on the fly, and you know that you've got him where you want to, but if you let yourself be known in who Jesus is, if you risk the relationship with his soul, which is the most important thing, that you can lose the contract, and you back away, I want to say to you entanglement. See, guys, the only reason God condones involvement with the pagan world is to win the lost. It is not to build up friendships. It is not to build up businesses. It is not to build up empires. It is only to win the lost. Do you agree or disagree? Right? If that is true, at any time I compromise that position, I'm entangled because it's more important to me that the world comes than what God has commanded me to do. And that's a form of guilt. All right? Are you encouraged yet, Jack? All right, good enough. <laughs> Let's go down the last group, okay? The question in the first two groups was depending on God. Can I depend on God to meet my needs or do must I yoke? Can I depend on God or must I choose the logic to get the answer to the problem answered? We come into the great reign of a hundred good kings, a hundred years of good kings. An interesting group. Joash is the first of those. Remember, he was the child king that Athaliah tried to kill off. And Jehoiada brought in. Jehoiada served him well. And, and Joash grew to greatness. And Jehoiada died. Joash turned and picked new people to govern him and be accountable to him, to carry the country into depravity. Not so much that Joash himself does not get buried with the king. There's such a disgust with him. Joash, the word for Joash is convenient accountability. I pick the guys that give me the answers I want to hear. The guy that followed him is Amaziah. Amaziah is a guy I've tell you, I've read him 50 times and I still don't understand the guy. He goes up and fights the uh, Edomites in a battle that he has no business winning. He destroys them in an unbelievable way. He even knows it is a miracle of God. The prophet tells him what to do. The story is such that he has 250,000 soldiers. He goes over in contract with Israel. So he buys 100,000 more soldiers, mercenaries to fight with him, so he can get a similar to parity with the Ethiopians, I mean the Edomites, which is 500,000 versus 350. God comes to him through the prophet and says, forget that extra 100,000. Tell him to go home because I'm going to give you victory. Now, being a good businessman, he says, wait a minute, God, we've already paid them. So, we don't want to do that. God says, forget it, let them go home. So the 100,000 100, go back to Israel. So he goes in the battle with the 250,000, and God renders him success and victory. What does he do? He goes over and takes the gods of the Edomites and worships them. I, I just, I'm absolutely confused in the area why he did this. He goes deeper into it with the Assyrians, the same thing. He is such that when he dies, they do not bury him with the kings. They bury him in a foreign a grave. He, he, he sires Uzziah. 
excuse me, Amaziah, the word would be illogical. He is absolutely illogical. Uzziah, the word is pride. A man of great achievement, a man who God used in miraculous ways, but eventually the achievement of product became so great to him, he gets sucked up in time, and he loses it in the Holy of Holies. And he signs his son, Jotham. And Jotham is tradition, is the word for him. There's not much written on, on Jotham. I'd like to put that in more perspective in a moment. Jotham is a man that carries the country into uh, disaster by uh, Siring Ahaz. He's a guy that drifts in because he treats the whole issue of God as a point of tradition. Now, these guys are interesting to me because these are the good kings. 100 years of them, and the product is a destruction of them and a bad preparation for the, when the Assyrians come in. There is kingship which is earmarked by half-heartedness. By half-heartedness. Now, what is half-heartedness? God says this about a bunch of them in their epitaph. It's interesting to take the time to go through all the kings and write, read what each epitaph is on every king. It's interesting to see what God's final comment about the guys are in this room. And what is half-heartedness? Well, half-hearted, we're half-hearted when we turn over to God only select parts of our life, only select compartments, only select rooms. We're half-hearted when I control what parts of my life God controls. When I control what parts of my life God controls. Basically, God, you can have my Bible study. You can have my accountability group. Good, the prayer group, God, that's yours. The weekend vacations, God, that's yours. Most of the family life. But God, when it comes to the job, they just don't understand how tough it is in there. Guys, that's the earmark of half-heartedness. That's double standards. That's double commitment. We spend the time trying to get in control of our life, but we've got to understand that we're out of control and that God is in control. Why, do we, why are we half-hearted? Well, one reason, the major reason you're half-hearted is that you want to be in control. And that's been the gut issue of the kings from the beginning. Who is in control? Who is in control? And you want to be in control. And the only way you can do that is you can turn certain things over that you realize you have a tiny chance of dealing with. But those things that you think that there's just maybe a glimmer that I can ram this in through, I'll hold on for dear life. We want to be in control. We want to be half-hearted. Excuse me. I'm sorry. We are half-hearted because we want to affiliate, affiliate to a group but not commit to the vision and principle. I like being known with Winston Parker. I like being known with you, man. But don't make me walk your line. Don't make me have a vision I've got to go on some street corner and hand out tracks. Don't do that to me. I want to be renowned by you. I want to be related to you. I want to be affiliated with you. I want to be associated with you. And I'm not going to pay the price. God, I want to be your man, but don't make me pay the price. That's half hearted in this guy. Because I want to be known in that circle, but I don't want to be pay the price in that circle. We want to emulate a person for his approval, but not for his principles. We want to gain a reputation of conviction, but not any of the efforts that conviction causes us. That's, how, that's why we're half hearted. Well, what did the four kings teach us on half heartedness? Joash. Convenient accountability. 
It was okay as long as Joe Hyatt was there that he would lean under Joe Hyatt. But when Joe Hyatt does, he separates and goes through more guys that agree with him. And he takes us into an era of depravity. How many times guys have come to me and said, Gail, this job is just not right for me. It is really a tough deal in there. And, and um, the guys don't love God and, and I don't share their values. And it is just wretched in there. And they use bad language and they have the wrong objective. And this guy, it's offered me a job and it's an all-Christian company. And we're going to pray together and we're going to love each other and everything is going to be great. What do you think I ought to do? Or he says, I'm sure God wants me to go with him, but there's nothing you can say about it. You think God says, you go? You ought to go. He goes over and I've seen him a month later. How's it going? It's unbelievable. We pray together, we share our visions together, everything is great. And Gail, business is going, everything I touch, I sell. God's hands on it, there's no doubt God's hands on it. I can tell God's hands on it. Six months later, how's it going? And then God's calling me to another job. They don't, they don't pray together just right. Or they, don't, they don't like my hermeneutic star. They don't think I have enough quiet time or business is not good. God says not in it. I'll pick my point of accountability when I get the message back I want. And accountability, guys, you're going to risk being told that you're wrong. If David had only asked Nathan, what do you think about me having an adulterous affair with Bathsheba? You may not have read about it in the Bible. You only asked, what do you think about me killing you guys? Do you think that's okay? And I want to tell you guys, in my life, I make decisions. If I would stop for just a few moments and say, I wonder what Winston Parker would say if I explain this one to him. Or Brian Ray if I explain that. But this is what I think I'll do. I begin to understand I'm negotiating off the principles of my life because I have no accountability in my life. A point to half-heartedness is convenient accountability. Second would be spiritual pride. We learn from Uzziah spiritual pride. We pursue God. God blesses us. We begin to define success in that blessing. We begin to stop growing because we're sure we created the blessing. We can't be taught. We begin to collect coupons. We lose our humility, and we are never teachable again. And we go in the tank. I pursue God in a humble state of prayer. God help me. Things begin to happen. I look around in the blessing. I say, God, I really appreciate the blessing, but weren't you glad I was there with you? I begin to develop and things begin to go right, and I am now fully convinced that I have done it myself. And isn't it great all these guys that are around me and, and, and memorizing scriptures and the business is going well, because look what I have done. And I begin to become more important on managing the product and making the product more and more and losing the dependence on God. And I shift into a gear of defending what I have. And I stop growing. And I begin to clip coupons. I lose my humility, and I become unteachable. And one of the great problems of guys during my era, I'm, I'll be 50 in June, is we quit being teachable. Quit being teachable. I quit saying, help me understand better how to be a man of God. Desire shifted into the unteachable. He moved to a spiritual pride, and God checked him out of the battle. And the great defeaters and the guys pursuing a relationship to God on the long haul is they lose their teachability. Stay around men that kick you in the fanny 
that say, stay teachable. Don't clip coupons. So the great leaders of the Christian movement have lost it because they started clipping coupons. All right? How do you mean that? I'll tell you, I know some leaders that say, in the early part of their life, they pursued a relationship to God. And they were men of the Word, and they took the Word, and they studied it, and they applied it, and they memorized great chunks of it. And they did what God said, and they saw God bless it, and they learned how to give a testimony. And then they became famous, and so they made around made a lot of talk. And they got everybody wanted to be around them. And they quit studying the Word, and they quit memorizing and they quit being humble before God because they had the secret down. They could have just give this thing away. But I want to tell you, you never stop learning, guys. Every decade of your life is for a reason. Every decade of your life is to teach more about God. What I learned in my 50s, you can't learn in your 30s. You're not going to learn until you get to your 50s. That is saved for when you're there fighting your way through your 50s with God. So they live in their 30s spiritually and begin to collect coupons. They just say, oh, you want to hear another verse? They took one they remember about 10 years ago and put it on their table. Oh, let me talk about my last great prayer of victory 10 years ago. And I don't know that all the stories have become dating. If you begin to penetrate them, they ask them to think about new things in the Christmas. They can't do that. And they lose their teachability. It is a constant learning process of the day you die. And every decade has a new lesson God wants to teach you guys. Don't back away. Don't back away. You're getting better every decade. I think. <laughs> Hardiness, Jason, traditionalism. I speak in Jason, and I'm taking spiritual liberties with you and reading that, but he had no personal conviction. He is not aggressive in his relationship to God. There's an appearance of complete retreat into a spiritual cocoon. He quit risking his relationship in life to God. He stopped being teachable. He pulled back in. He did not have conviction, and he lived out of tradition. And guys, today's conviction are tomorrow's traditions and their next generation's rebellion. And if you pass on to your children only tradition, I assure you, they will rebel against them and pass them to the side. Convictions are personally held in one in the first generation. They're never a second generation item. People must constitute their own convictions from generation to generation. And Joseph drifted into it and he developed a lineage of rebellion. Convictions are only through discovery and never through inheritance. They're a personal commitment. They are not something your children can inherit. And so Jason, in his half-heartedness, because he was not aggressive in his relationship to God, because he did not continue to push out with God, developed tradition, which sunk his ship. And Amaziah, Amaziah is the guy who viewed his circumstances uh, in light of his control rather than God producing his circumstances. He's a guy that suffered out of his half-heartedness completely vertigo. He goes in and God gives him great victory and he absolutely makes the upside down decision on what he's doing. What did half-heartedness bring to it? In Joash we brought convenient accountability to the point that he lost it. Uzziah, spiritual pride came out of half-heartedness. Jason, tradition brought him into uh, half-heartedness. And we give to Amaziah, you find the guy completely losing his orientation. One of the great verses, I think, on half-heartedness in the Scripture is in Revelation. Revelation. 
chapter 3, verse 15 and 16. I know your work, that you are neither hot nor cold. I could wish you were cold or hot. Say then, because you are lukewarm, and neither cold nor hot, I will spew you out of my mouth. And I think the guise of half-heaviness is you've gotten to be lukewarm. You've played it comfortable in the middle. And God said, I wish, I think you say that I always wish you were rebellion, because at least if you were negative, you could hear me. I could reach up and slap you and you'd catch on what's going on. Or at least if you were hot, you could be listening to me. Because you're lukewarm, because you positioned yourself in a half-hearted day, you can't hear me. In the devotional day, he's talking about hearing God. And if you want to shut off your spiritual ears, guys, commit your life to half-heartedness. If you want to turn off God's lessons to you, God talking to you, commit your life to half-heartedness. Yeah, it's risky being in God's hand. You bet it is. You bet it's risky being in God's hand. It's risky to say that the logical thing to do is what God tells me to do. But it's illogical not to do what God does. It is risky to go out there and choose accountability that says you're wrong in what you're doing. Stop it. That costs, bud. That, that stings. It's risky going out there and remaining teachable year after year and people being able to tell you that you're wrong. It stings. It's risky not retreating in tradition. Oh, it's so much easier if I could just get into tradition and get away from this junk. But guys, if you do, you're approaching lukewarmness. When you do that, God says, oh, I wish you were cold at all. Because you're neither, I will spew you out. We pray for us, and then we'll open up the questions and answers. God, we thank you uh, for that first group of kings. We thank you for the message. And I pray that we are men committed, dear Lord, to uh, pursuing you with all this back. Men, God, who will trust you for the aspects of our life. Men who will do the logical things for seed. Men who will not become entangled in the world. And men who are not committed to half-heartedness. And God, as we go through the rest of the lesson, I pray that you will keep our spiritual ears open. And that you, that we will sense your presence. And that we will know you are here. And that our answers won't matter, but that you will be glorified and will get a better understanding about being your man. Amen. Any questions and answers for the next question? Yes. All right. Let me go through it again. Okay, let me just say, clipping the coupon comes from the fact that when I have, um, I get some, um, I go buy coupons to get on a, a train, or if I have coupons, I do enough work and they give me some coupons that I can go cash them in. Instead of being paid money in the old company store, I was giving coupons that I can go cash in. Are you with me? But early in my life, I get the coupon book, and I quit adding to the coupon book, and I quit those out the rest of my life. Is that fair enough? Spending yesterday's investment. Right. You see, God is a God of today. Yes, we, we live out of it last year. You will live today on what you did five years ago. But don't forget, you're going to live five years today on what you're doing today. Yeah.